All right, so in uh, 2021, we spent a lot of time going through the Old Testament. You know, when our family came down here uh, to do the church plant five years ago, we spent a lot of time going through New Testament books, right? John and Acts, trying to get a sense for the New Testament church. But we realized in order to really understand the New Testament, we kind of need to spend some time in the Old, right? That was the Bible of Jesus and Paul. That was the Bible that shaped the imagination of the New Testament writers. So we spent this last year, you know, Genesis, Exodus, a little bit in Leviticus, uh, but mostly hitting the narratives. We've reached, uh, as we start 2022, 1 Samuel. We're going to spend a little time in First and 2 Samuel, and then we're going to probably take a break from the Old Testament and go through Mark. Uh, that's our sort of hope. And then we'll probably come back to the Old Testament and finish our way. Now, 1 Samuel, a, a few contextual notes. If you haven't been with us, we were just in Judges. Judges has this repeated theme where the people of Israel, they kind of do their own thing. They do what is right in their own eyes. It gets them stuck there. Then crying out to God, God sends a rescuer, and they're like, yes, that lasts for a little bit. Then they do their own thing, right? Cycle repeats multiple times. The last line of the book of Judges is something like this. They had no king. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And what it's doing is it's setting the stage of, man, we really, what we need is a king to lead us. If we just had a king, everything would be okay. And that sets the stage for Samuel, right? And we're going to get introduced to David. We're going to get introduced to Saul, Solomon, all these key figures. For now, let's begin at the very beginning of Samuel. We're introduced to this man named Elkanah. And then, after being introduced to Elkanah, we're introduced to his two wives, Hannah and Peniah. Now, the thing is, Peniah, she she has kids, but Hannah doesn't. And the author assumes that we've read the previous books of the Bible, right? Because something similar has happened with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Samson's mother as well in Judges. Right? Infertility often marks these key points in salvation history when God does something amazing. The story really picks up steam in verse 3. Now this man used to, that's referring to Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all his sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as he went up to the house of the Lord, or she went up to the house of the Lord, she, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, sorry, struggling, I need the English instruction, obviously, that Allie provides. So it went on year after year, and as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, tons going on here. I want to start with this, though. Elkanah is clearly framed as this guy who's trying to be faithful, right? Every year he goes up to Shiloh, right? In a culture where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, we're still in Judges, he is trying to be faithful, Every year, he'd go up with his family to worship God. 
about a 15-mile trip, right? Kind of maybe a two-day journey, depending on your walking pace from here, right, to downtown Salinas. Now, if you're wondering why they went to Shiloh versus the Jerusalem Temple, a couple things. One, the Jerusalem Temple hasn't been built yet. Uh, so that would have been odd if they went to the Jerusalem Temple. And second, uh, what we notice, uh, if you go back to Judges, the tent of meeting uh, is set up in Shiloh in chapter 18 of Judges. So Shiloh is kind of like this primary religious worship center in Israel. Now, I just have a quick picture because I want to orient us really quickly. Imagine you're sort of walking through, you'd have this sort of tent uh, that is enclosed. So on the outside, you see there's like a courtyard. Do you see that-ish? So courtyard on the outside, and then you have that tented structure. That's where like the Holy of Holies would be. That's where the priests would stand. And this is going to become relevant in a minute, right? So you'd go to this place every year. And Elkanah would do this. And right? he's trying to be faithful. But despite his attempt to be faithful, right, his family is not very happy. Just like between Hagar and Sarah, there's this bitter conflict that is surfacing between Hannah and Peniah. While Peniah has been able to have kids, Elkanah loves Hannah more. And if you read between the lines in the text, there's nothing in the text to say that Elkanah loves Peniah at all. So out of this resentment, out of this jealousy... Penia torments Hannah. The text says that she would provoke her grievously to irritate her. Likely she'd mock Hannah for having no children, right? which would have been a significant source of identity, way more than even in our modern world. To make matters worse, though, Elkanah seems kind of oblivious to Hannah's treatment. And he clearly doesn't really get Hannah's situation. Like, sort of, sip, let's slow down and imagine this for a second. So, the family walks this 15 miles to Shiloh. They offer their sacrifices. And then on the last day, there would be this feast, right? We had the picture up there of the, like, courtyard area. This would be outside the courtyard. And they'd have this feast. And Peniel's kids are running around the table, and Hannah's sitting there. She's depressed. She's come year after year after year, and God hasn't answered her prayer. And she's sitting there weeping and not eating while everyone else is gorging on this feast and celebrating. Elkanah, he try, tries to comfort her. But when his sort of first attempt at comfort doesn't work and her emotional reality doesn't change, she doesn't start smiling and dancing with everyone else. Right? He kind of wants her to just enjoy the feast. Like, come on, can't you just enjoy it? Look at all that you have. Can you just be happy? Can you just be content with your life? Subtext, can you kind of just get over it? And he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more than ten sons? No, my friend, you are not. <laughs> right? Hannah 
longs for a child. Most likely scenario historically is that Elkanah married Hannah because he loved her. Once he realized she wasn't going to have kids, he takes a second wife, which is very normal in their culture. Then the second wife has kids. And now you have the burgeoning of this jealousy because he loves Hannah. But Peniel has the kids. And now she's jealous because she's the success in the family, but she's unloved. And now it leaks out in relationship towards Hannah. And Elkanah's oblivious to it all, saying, can't we just all get along? She's sitting at the table. She's weeping. She's not eating. It's kind of awkward. Aren't I more important to you than ten sons? Don't you love me? Aren't I a great husband? Aren't I amazing? Right? Rather than seeing her, he's a little defensive. He's a little insecure. He's a little wondering, you know, whether he is meaningful. And now he's sort of pushing it onto her. What's she supposed to do? Uh, yes, you are more than ten sons. Sorry, I'm crying. So she does what most of us does in this moment. She leaves. Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Okay, so imagine it. They're eating outside the tent of meeting. She leaves and now she goes into that courtyard area. And Eli's sitting by the tent of meeting, you know, because that's where priests are allowed to go. He's sort of at that threshold looking in. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and will not forget your servant, but I will give to you your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head." All right, so we have to imagine this. She's at the party after a week of prayer, right? They've been doing offerings. She's weeping at the table. She leaves. She goes into that courtyard area. Eli's sitting up there. He sees her come in. The text says that Hannah is deeply distressed and weeping bitterly, right? She's in this place of depressed desperation. She cries to God in prayer, like, God, just see me. God, see my affliction, remember me. God, don't forget me. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where all you want in your pain, in your loneliness, is to feel like God sees you. Right? Maybe you're sad or depressed, you're grieving. And your prayer, right, is is as much like these snotty tears as it is words. You want to be known by God. You want God to answer that one prayer. And if you think if that one prayer was answered, everything else would be okay. And you'll do anything. Right, in this case, Hannah makes a vow almost identical to Samson's mother, who was also infertile, in the book of Judges. The Nazarite vow of number six, right? I won't use a razor on his head. She's basically taking the vow upon herself for her son. And two, she offers that if this baby is born, he will come and serve at the tent of meaning 
with Eli and this family. She'll bring him to serve in this place. She's desperate. Her prayer is this profound and beautiful example to us of like what the whole point of this is, right? To come to God with our needs and our longings and yet Eli, the most powerful religious figure in all of Israel, totally misses it. Verses 12 to 14. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Are you serious? Someone said to me as I was going over this with the worship team, they're like, this is like straight out of TMZ or something. It's like, <laughs> verse 14, Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Like, imagine this. This woman is depressed She's sad. She's weeping. She's fasting at dinner. She's mocked and ridiculed by the closest woman in her life. She's totally misunderstood and manipulated by Elkanah, her spouse. She leaves that environment thinking she's going to find solace in the house of God. And what happens? The most powerful religious figure publicly humiliates her saying, Lady, you're drunk. What are you doing? You know, who knows, other people are there hearing this rebuke. Now, given all the misbehaviors that we'll learn about uh, in Eli's house and in the tent of meeting, uh, which we'll talk about next week, seems that not everything in Shiloh is above board, so it's actually probably not surprising. Like, Eli probably encounters drunk people coming in from the parties, and they're like, you know, sort of drunk and weepy praying, and sort of, he's like used to us, and he's trying to intervene. Even more likely, it's probably pretty uncommon that sincere, devout, and emotional prayer is really happening at Shiloh, which partly informs Eli's misdiagnosis. But now, called out, what does Hannah do? What would you do? I think if that was me, I would just like be like, I'm done. Like I would just leave and walk away and be like, I don't know. Find some place in the desert to just like be by myself. I'm just crazy impressed by her courage at this moment. Verse 15, Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am not, our, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I haven't been pouring wine down my throat. I'm pouring my soul out to the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Can you imagine how much courage it took for Hannah to do that? This is like the lead religious figure in all of Israel. No. That's how she starts. No. That's a lie. That is not true. You got it wrong, Eli. I am troubled, not worthless. I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. Isn't that the whole point of this? 
Isn't that the whole function of this space? Isn't the whole point of the tent and the meeting to be a place where we come before God in worship and supplication? Isn't He the one to whom we're supposed to bring our anxiety, our fear, our worries? Isn't that what we're supposed to do here, Eli? Now, at this moment, I think it clicks in Eli's brain. He's like, uh-oh, you know, my bad. Verse 17. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. It's interesting, right? Eli doesn't apologize. Seems a little uncool in my end. But he does bless her with peace and asks that God grants her request. And this seems to help Hannah. Or maybe it's the cathartic prayer, right? Letting her emotions out in the presence of Jesus. Or maybe it was the fact that Eli saw her totally after missing the boat. But regardless, the text says that Hannah, and this is super important, verse 18, went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. The text says next that the family worshipped God the next morning and they went home on their 15-mile walk. Now, the story doesn't give us a lot of details, but it does say that at some point in their hometown, God remembered Hannah's prayer. And Hannah conceived, and he bore a son and called him Samuel. Now, as the story unfolds, what we find out is that Hannah skips the the yearly trek for the next couple years because she's nursing Samuel, her son. But at the age of three, she brings him back to Shiloh as she promised to Eli. You have to kind of imagine this, right? So Eli's probably forgotten who she is. So she's like a little preamble, and this is who I am. This is what she says. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord. I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord, right? The one you thought was drunk. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me by petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And then sort of the irony, the sort of subtle irony of the text is she gives him a, a flask of wine. You probably skip over this usually, but it's like, wait, you called me drunk? Here's some wine, Eli. <laughs> Who's drunk now, you know? Right? She explains to him, hey, I prayed for this child in this space, and God has listened to my prayer. And it might seem odd to us, right, that she would give a three-year-old child to this temple system or this tent of meeting system. Like, for most of us, we're like, what are you doing, you know? Everyone in here is like, that seems awkward. But textually, we have to realize that, one, we are in a very different historical moment. And two, we can tell that this isn't Hannah's experience. She's not like freaking out because the next thing she does in the text is worship and praise God. This is verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, right? She's less focused on her child being away from her and more focused on the goodness of God revealed to her. Now, as I tend to say here, I just want to highlight two things. First is this. Hannah personally is thanking God for what he has done. Verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. And then in verses 2 and 3, there is none holy like the Lord. 
And then seemingly with uh, Penny uh, sort of mocking in her mind, she says this, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Penny, uh, God has listened to my prayer, not your mocking. Verse 5, she talks about the barren having children, God being the source of life. So clearly this prayer is personal. But I think it's also important at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we also recognize that her prayer at this moment is prophetic. Verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Remember when we talked about that very end of Judges, the last line was, there was no king in Israel. Now Hannah in her prayer is sort of attaching onto the longing of Israel and saying, all right, God, you're going to bring that king. So at this end of this scene, Hannah's prayer sort of serves as this prophetic function, identifying the longing of Israel for a king and a savior, an anointed Mashiach, Messiah, Christos, Christ, which becomes a major theme of Samuel. All right, so that's kind of the text I wanted to cover for today. The question now is, how does this relate to us? Right? You have all these themes moving about. You have Hannah's experience, you have the family's troubles, you have Eli's comments, you have Samuel's birth. All right, how does this hit the ground in our everyday life a number of centuries later? Well, the first thing I want to highlight is one thing that's just so clear in this text to me are the levels of emotional pain and how people respond to it. Right? Hannah's experience of grief and the way she is received in community. Right? She's deeply grieved, and yet, in the midst of her sadness, she's actually mocked. Her husband, Elkanah, totally misses her impersonalizes her sadness and makes it about himself. Aren't I more than 10 sons? Then you have Peniah, who's unloved, but successful, right? In the ancient era, she's having kids, so she's measured as successful, but she's unloved. She's lonely. And so her loneliness kind of leaks out into jealousy and anger directed towards Hannah. Rather than owning her emotional reality of, I feel unloved, right? She takes it out on Hannah. It's a mess. It is an absolute mess. And sadly, it's a mess with which we are not unfamiliar. Who has felt hurt or felt unseen in their family or in the church? So often in family and in church, we ignore the ways that our relational and emotional needs and desires impact one another. Too often, right, the person in fa- pain feels like she needs to pretend like she's okay. Or if she tells someone, the person's just going to try and fix her, thereby minimizing her emotional reality. Oh, I did this, some trite little thing, and tells you, like, you should do that too. Then you'd be okay Subtext like me. Ever been there? Ever felt that loneliness of like, 
I wish you wouldn't try and fix me. Now I just want to leave and get away from this conversation. Or have you ever been hurt and rather than admitting your sadness or pain, you've taken it out on someone else? Either in anger or in jealousy or with withdrawing in order to punish the person who caused you pain? None of us do that. Have you ever been with someone who's struggling? Maybe it's a roommate or a partner or a spouse. And you personalize your partner or roommate or spouse's unhappiness. And you just kind of want them to feel better because it's inconvenient to you. And you don't really want to feel sad or down. You don't really want to deal with the messiness of their emotional down or low And so you personalize it, like Elkanah, and say something like, aren't I enough? Why are you so sad? Shouldn't you just be happy with all the things you have going on in your life? Man, look how grateful you should be. Aren't I more than 10 sons? Now, there's tons to say here, and I think most of us, if we slow down a bit, can relate to some of this. I mean, we could do seminars and sermons and lots of stuff. I want to highlight two things uh, this morning related to this. First, I just think if we are truly going to love each other, love our neighbor, our brothers and sisters, maybe starting in this room, I think we need to be a people who make room for discomfort. This means noticing when others are struggling and rather than trying to fix them, we make room for them to weep, to cry, to be sad, to not be okay. Notice how Elkanah tries to get his wife to eat, but he fails to fall on his knees in the courtyard behind with her, weeping with her in the presence of God. Why won't you eat? Elkanah, the better question is, why did you not follow your wife into the presence of God and weep with her? He totally misses it. The thing is, making room for discomfort is inconvenient, when we want to get things done. And we are a culture focused on productivity. We're a culture focused on accumulating cool experiences. And depression and sadness and anxiety aren't really the things we want with us when we're trying to get stuff done and accumulate cool experiences. But if you've ever been sad, if you have ever felt lonely, if you have ever been depressed, You know how powerful and healing it is when someone is just with you. If you've ever been through a a long season of sadness, you know what it's like when that person just sits on the couch with you. They don't say anything. They just sit there. And you experience the presence of God. This is the thing, right? Making room for discomfort is not just about interpersonal relations. It's not just about how we behave with others. It's also within ourselves. 
You notice that Hannah is the only person in this passage who actually makes room for her discomfort? Did you notice that? She feels and then brings it to Yahweh. She is also the only person in the text who experiences any change. Right? She goes from weeping to no longer feeling sad. Peniah doesn't make room for her sadness. Her sadness at not being loved. And because of this, what does she do? She takes it out on Hannah. It leaks out. Elkanah, likewise, rather than feeling his sense of powerlessness, his sense of helplessness that he cannot control Hannah's emotional reality, rather than saying, oh yeah, I feel helpless right now, which would be very uncomfortable, right? He responds with this defensiveness. Aren't I valuable? My experience is if we cannot make room for our own personal pain, grief, sadness, discomfort, it not only leaks, it not only affects us, but it leaks out into our relationships in unintended ways, in jealousy, in anger, in withdrawal. Now the question is how do we apply this, right? I want to offer two things uh, and then get on to sort of another way I think this translates into our modern life. The first thing is this. How do we apply this? First, First thing would be this. In our life together, I want us to do a double movement. One, let's listen to one another rather than talk. And then let's talk to God. Listen to our brothers and sisters. Move two, talk to God. Often what we do is we talk to each other without listening, and then we actually never turn to God and ask Him to intervene. It's like a double miss. And the cool thing, if we actually listen, it informs our prayer. And then in our prayer, we ask God to give us a heart for this person so that our words are not just our words, but they're coming from that listening, that place of empathy. Then we are shaped by listening. We turn to God and say, God, help this person. Like Elkanah probably should have done. Listen to his wife and then wept with her in the tent of meeting. Let's be a people that listen to our brothers and sisters and then a people that talk to God. The second thing I want to say is I do think that if we want to be a people who make room for discomfort, we actually have to have some space in our life to slow down and feel. In my experience, Every Friday, you know, I take some, a chunk of time. It's sort of one of my days off. And it takes me about two hours to actually feel anything. Like I will sit there and I'll have all these thoughts and all these things I need to do. And it takes me about two, two hours of just sitting there to finally be like, oh, okay. Oh, that's how I feel. It actually takes me time. I, we sort of have this assumption that we should just be able to like be integrated and aware of what's going on my experience, and maybe I'm just slow, is it actually takes me a little time. Do we have space in our lives and in our rhythms where actually what we feel can come to the surface? 
Or are we just going from one thing to the next, distracting ourselves and likely building up momentum for the anxiety and the worry and the frustration like an avalanche, right? It's just picking up steam under the surface and leaking out into our relationships. Do we make room for discomfort? The second thing I want to do is sort of integrate a few different perspectives in this text. Uh, I want to integrate Hannah's desire, prayer, and worship. Uh, And I think it really centers around verse 15. Hannah says to Eli, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Right? She brings herself, her soul, to God and pours it out. Right? She hasn't been pouring any wine in her mouth. Instead, I sort of imagine her desire, her longings as a jar. And she goes to the foot of God, to the base of his throne, and just starts pouring out her desire at his feet. See, the thing is, we live in a really broken world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a, a sinful world. And if you flip back a few chapters to Genesis 3, what you see is that there's consequences to the fall and sinfulness in, in the world. Right? One of the first things that happens when Adam and Eve go their own way, right? they do what is right in their own eyes, a subtext of judges. That when they do what is right in their own eyes, what happens? One of the first things, emotionally, they experience shame. Right before this, they were naked and unashamed. What's the first thing that happens? They experience shame and they cover themselves. Second thing, they experience fear and they hide from God. And it seems to me in this moment of pouring out, Hannah is actually undoing the covering and the hiding of Genesis 3. She comes to God and pours out her heart. She uncovers the shame of her infertility and all the emotions connected to it. And she doesn't hide from God but comes to him. This doesn't mean that God will answer all of our prayers. He clearly doesn't for Hannah. She's come year after year after year, and God has not granted her request. But what this story does tell us is that pouring out our heart to God is transformative. Notice, this is really important textually, Hannah's emotional reality changes not because her prayer is answered. That's not the order of events. Her emotional reality changes as she pours out her heart to a relational God, and it's in the presence of God, not as a result of her answered prayer, that she moves from despair to worship. Her emotional reality changes in verse 18. It says, she was no longer sad. And then the next morning, she goes and worships God. As our worship team was meeting this morning, uh, one of the folks on our team sort of has been actually, God has been sort of saying something very similar to her this week. She realized that for a long time, she carried this idea that if you're faithful, God will protect you from the hardness of life. And that actually, 
is that like, oh man, God, you're failing me if I am sort of hurt in this world. And what she realized is that actually God does not promise that we will not be hurt in this world. What he promises is that he will be with us every step of the way. And what we see is that when Hannah pours out her heart in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the Trinity, something happens. Her sadness goes away. And she experiences worship the next morning. The thing is, though, I don't know about you, at least in my experience, like if I said to you right this second, pour out your heart, you'd be like, uh. Right? Is this not something we can just like make ourselves do? Right? You can't just be like, pour out your heart. Like you might be able to say the words, but pour out your heart? Probably not. See, the thing is, I actually need to be connected to what I long for in order to pour it out before God. I need to be aware of what I'm feeling, what I care about, what I'm disappointed in, how I'm affected by my sin, your sin, the sin in the world. I need to be aware of those things in order to bring them to the foot of Jesus and pour it out. This is the pre-wreck of pouring. Because the thing, pouring out your heart isn't just an exchange of ideas. God, I told you what I wanted, you know. You're Santa, give me my gift. We don't just make a request and get what we want. The point of pouring is connection. Right? It isn't just Hannah who does this. In the Psalms, I love this, Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 68 is telling us, right, pouring out is one of the ways that we illustrate our trust in God as our refuge, our safe haven. Right, that he is the one we go to when we're beat up in a sinful world. We go to God as our safe haven, not our prayer vending machine. How do I know if I'm pouring out my soul? How do you know? Textually, it seems that pouring out one's heart or soul involves emotion. In Hannah, right, verse 18, she connects heart pouring with her anxiety and her vexation, right? She's annoyed, frustrated, worried. My experience is also true. I cannot think of a single time in which I actually poured out my soul and I didn't have an emotion. I can think of many times when I was in that back area behind these pews during worship on my knees just weeping, probably not even saying anything. My tears are my prayers, and it's this moment where I'm just, all of me is before God, and I'm just like, God, I have no idea what to do. I need the God of the universe to do something.
pouring out our heart involves our emotions. It's probably not our everyday prayer. This is not, I think, something we can expect to do every day. Like, did you pour out this morning? Oh, I poured, baby, you know? (laughs) But I would say this. When was the last time you did pour out your heart before God? In this last year, has there been a time when you were a snotty, bawling mess on the floor at the foot of Jesus saying, Papa, help me. Because I would say, if in the last year you haven't had a moment like that, you should probably have a yellow flag going up in your brain, maybe even a red. Because what that tells me is you're not very connected to God's longing. We live in a broken, messed up world where families do horrible things to one another, where people in the streets and in this community do horrible things. Most of us have had painful things happen to us. If we're not connected to that personally or on behalf of someone else coming to God and saying, God, help, I would say we are probably pretty disconnected from our own personal longing and pretty disconnected from the longing, the groans of creation that are waiting and wanting a Savior to come and rescue. It probably means that God is not your refuge and that you're going somewhere else. Now, one of the things this text does is it doesn't just speak to you and me and what we should do. It also speaks to who God is and what he is going to do. It also points to Jesus. This is especially true in Hannah's prayer, which is both personal, remember, and prophetic. Right? First Samuel is in large part about the, lo- the transition from judges to first and second Samuel, first and second kings. Right? This transition from judges to kings. And Hannah's prayer seems to point us to the one who will rule, to the anointed, to the Messiah, to the Christos, to the Christ, right? And therefore linking us back to Genesis 1, right? Humans as image bearers sent to represent God and rule the world, right? There's this longing built into Genesis 1 that one day we as humans will be kings and rule over. But what we find and what we will find is that in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the kings, there will be many of them, will disappoint. They don't deal with the core problem of humans doing what is right in their own eyes. So the text is pointing us beyond itself to the person of Jesus, to the king who will come and rescue us. And if you get a bit nerdy and you flip to the New Testament, what you'll see, something striking. The similarity between Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer in Luke 1. The angel shows up and tells Mary, oh, you're going to be this key person in salvation history. And Mary riffs back to Hannah. 
Both prayers talk about turning of the tables of the rich and the powerful. Both speak of the rich going away hungry and the hungry being fed. Both refer to God's anointed coming, right? The person of Jesus. And in this sense, as we begin 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer is pointing us to Jesus. Pointing us to our need for a Savior. That in the end, pouring out is about recognizing that we need God. That we cannot do it ourselves. That we need a king, we need a priest, we need a prophet to lead us. That we need Jesus. I want to invite the worship team up. Because what we're going to do now is we're going to actually shift towards a posture of singing and worship. A posture where we actually look to God and His faithfulness. Not our faithfulness, but His. We're going to start by singing about the goodness of God. We're going to sing things like, I love you, Lord. Your mercies never fail. I've been held in your hands. God, you are faithful because in the end, the reason we gather here today is not because you and I have our act together, but because God rescues us. God is faithful. God is our refuge in a broken and pretty messed up world. I invite you to stand and pray and sing with me. Lord Jesus, you are good and you are beautiful. You are king. When Heather was reading Psalm 42 earlier this morning, I just had this picture in my mind of this wall and this crack, this great crack that went down the middle of it. And I think some of us are coming into this place with all kinds of walls up. Tony, how dare you talk about pouring out my heart? How dare you say that I'm yellow to red if I haven't wept in a snotty mess? And I think God is wanting to crack those walls with his goodness and mercy because the thing is, the walls we erect between each other are the same walls we carry into our relationship with God. God, I just pray that you would crack the walls that we have that shield our heart from your love, that deny us the healing and transformation, God, that you want to bring us. God, I pray that you would crack the ways that we hide behind these walls in our shame and in our fear. Jesus, you would set us free by the power of your Holy Spirit to experience